Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Um, I'm pleased to say that joining me on today's show on what is another warm summer morning here in the capital is Emma Armitage. Emma is the Managing Director at Excel Water, a specialist in providing pure water solutions within the water treatment market, encompassing design, manufacturing and installation of certain key equipment. Um, Emma, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure, Emma. Certainly is a nice warm day for it as well. Um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing what I like to call the elephant in the room, and that's the fact that we're recording this podcast in late July 2021. And so even though social restrictions are gone in England for the time being around the COVID-19 pandemic, we're still feeling the impact of the health crisis. And it's been lingering over us now for the best part of the last 16 months and affecting our day-to-day lives in one way or another. And with all of that in mind, going way, way back to March 2020, when it really started taking a hold of our daily lives, how has all of this affected you and affected your business, would you say? Um, it affected us really in a number of ways. Obviously, initially when the lockdown was announced, um, we, we shut down. We, um, we worked from home where possible. Um, and it affected the business in the sense that there were lots of sites where we just couldn't visit. They sort of shut down and we sort of had a... Uh, probably that initial month of not really quite knowing what was what was going on. Um, we also had quite a bit of sort of health anxiety, really, sort of amongst the staff because nobody, you know, this is all very new to us, and we're not sort of sure how it's going to play out. Um, we sort of tried to overcome that by trying to have sort of you know obviously daily meetings we, we've all got much more proficient at using you know the likes of zoom and teams and all those other sort of online platforms mm. um we also realized that our business wasn't very um well prepared for being able to work remotely so they were just sort of one of the sort of key things that occurred within that first month um mm. we then found that come sort of April time, there were some of the sites that we were working on. So we do quite a lot of work for um, the chemical manufacturing industry. We do some work for NHS Trust, um, food manufacturing, and, and all those other types of industries which were still operating. So we got to a point where the engineers could go to site, and, and bearing in mind we're often servicing quite critical equipment, and quite frequently, this equipment would be located away from the main um, actual factory. So we were able to go to site without having sort of any real contact with anybody, service our equipment and, and then go. Um, and then May came and we secured some fairly large orders. 
and one was for a chemical, sorry, not chemical, a cleaning uh, manufacturing company. So they're making um, a lot of the antibacterial sprays and one of them was for an NHS trust. So all of a sudden we suddenly had quite a lot of work and quite a small amount of time to deliver it. It became a challenge having to work obviously remotely to start with, maybe have one engineering at the workshop at a time, um, and even the physicality of trying to deliver that equipment to site afterwards. Um, quite um, a number of our customers are actually manufacturers of the hand sanitizer. So as you can imagine, their workload increased. And in some cases, they've seen production go up by 250%. Mm. So a really huge sort of uplift. Um and basically, the, the equipment that we build, you need to basically produce pure water and you have to have pure water to manufacture hand sanitizer. So instead of being a, a sort of, you know, a lull over those sort of couple of months, we actually saw an increase in business. Um, the biggest restriction that we had was um, engineers traveling because they normally work all over the country. And... They were, you know, we couldn't book any overnight accommodation for them. We couldn't send two engineers in a vehicle together, so they had to go separately. Um, so logistics-wise, that was really quite a challenge. Um, a number of staff, particularly probably the younger members of staff, um, struggled a little bit um, with the lockdown, partly because they were potentially living on their own um, and were sort of beginning to feel quite isolated. So. As a company, we said, let's get together every week and we'll do, you know, a team quiz, you know, to try and boost morale and obviously try and have some of those sort of interactions that we'd have normally had, had we all been together. So it, it wasn't just the business impact, it was the personal impact for people. It was all those other sort of knock-on effects, really, that there it had, plus the uncertainty as, I mean, for me, it was the concern about the economy and where's this going to go and how mm. it's going to affect us going forward. Sounds like an awful lot of operational change and operational challenges, certainly. And a big part of that as well, as you say, was the transition toward remote working models where it was necessary. And I suppose that sort of prompted a real change in leadership style and approach from yourself, didn't it? Just leading yeah. people from afar and just checking in on them, making sure that they were in that right headspace. Yeah, and it, it definitely affected sort of different people, even at different times. Um, you know, sometimes I've been quite surprised that even over the last sort of six months, people were still feeling quite anxious. And although we, you know, we've now passed the point of Freedom Day, things haven't returned back to how they were before. Um, and it, it's very much sort of each to their own. It's what they feel comfortable with. Um, there's no requirement now to wear masks, you know, when you're going into shops, but some people still want to wear masks, and I think that's, that's absolutely fine. It's, you know, it's what, you know, suits you as an individual. Um, but, yeah, we've had um, a number of changes. One of the key things that we did is we actually heavily invested in some software which will allow us to work more remotely. It reduces paperwork. It's internet-based. And it means that if we 
if we're in that position again, we'd be much better geared up for remote working and being able to, um, you know, just work more efficiently like that. Um, so it was quite um, a sort of revelation. It was a bit of a sort of shock to the system. We realised that, no, we weren't, you know, quite as um, up to date in that side of things than uh, what we thought. So, yeah, it, it's meant some, um, some challenges around trying to organise that, trying to make sure that everybody feels safe, everybody's happy with it. Um, we're quite lucky that within the office and workshop that we've got, we've actually got quite a bit of space and we were able, when we did return back to work, we were able to space people out, um, you know, very well. You know, never mind those two metres, they had sort of, you know, 10 metres in between them. So, you know, that helps. But going forward, um, we feel that as a team, we do still like working together. Um, so we're not the type of business where we could have just switched and said, right, everybody work from home because... Mm. Our engineers are often working on site at the customer's premises, um, which obviously you can't do remotely. Yeah, we talk an awful lot, don't we, about flexible working being part and parcel of the way we do business in this country in the long run, don't we? But we have to recognise that it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, especially with your industry. You need engineers on site. You need people to be sort of customer and client-facing, don't you? Because it's just, you can't operate otherwise. So... Um, it's a challenge for business to try and just sort of find that balance now, isn't it? Between sort of trying to maximise the sort of lifting of restrictions as much as possible from a commercial point of view and getting that work done, but also sort of maintaining that consideration of mental health and well-being and trying to dispel some of the anxiety around the lingering risk of COVID by just continuing to work as safely as possible. Yeah, and um, we, we certainly increased just even our communication um, and I don't just mean communicating with customers because that was really important. We were ensuring that we were communicating with customers, suppliers and with staff and trying to keep everybody up to date, you know, what we're doing as a company to make sure that everybody sort of um, stayed safe um, but also sort of how we were operating um, and how we are managing that and that was probably the biggest challenge really um, we spent sort of quite a bit of time talking to the staff and, and sort of saying right how can we make this work going forward what will you be comfortable with um, and, and even you know doing things like we were doing um, like almost a, a regular well we're still doing a regular clean down um, at the end of the day just even wiping down door handles and all those sort of things to make sure that you know we, we reduce the risk um, but yeah, there's been certainly health anxiety and it's not even just for the people working here, but it's thinking about their families at home um, and trying to make sure that everybody stays safe. I mean, touch wood, none of us have, have, had, a, have had a case of, of COVID. We've been very fortunate in that. Um, and we're at the point where nearly everybody is double jabbed. So we're... we're moving forward and um, so hopefully getting back to normal well or the new normal is probably the right phrase yeah exactly we're hearing an awful lot about that new normal aren't we because there's a lot that's going to change as a result of the pandemic and people talk a great deal about 
not forgetting the lessons that we've taken from the last 16 months and just reverting to the way we were before, but using it as a means of building back better, I suppose, as the UK government likes to call it. And if we think about some of the things that we have learned from the pandemic, what would you say, Emma, are some of the sort of key takeaways from your point of view? Um, the, the key takeaway is that you've got to be able to be to, to be flexible as a company. You need to be able to be responsive. Um, we have upgraded and rewritten sort of our, I, I would call it sort of the emergency response plan or the emergency business plan, and we've got much more things in place to deal with. You know, for example, we've maybe got somebody taken out of the business for two weeks if they need to self-isolate or for whatever reason. We are probably much better prepared going forward than what we were at the start. Um, and probably one of the biggest key takeaways, which I want to say we knew this beforehand, but it really reiterated it sort of in, in, our, in our heads, is that, you know, the most important thing is the team. You know, the, the team make everything happen the company doesn't exist without them and trying to make sure that they're okay they're happy that's that's probably the key priority i think for us as a business going forward it's quite ironic isn't it that in a year where we've all worked apart for large periods i think we formed even deeper human connections and in a way it's brought us closer together having to sort of see out a crisis together and make us make ourselves more resilient in a way yeah and um just even creating opportunities we've had a lot more opportunities just to have those conversations um and just asking somebody how are you doing today how are you feeling you know it's it, um and I, i'm not saying we didn't do that before but probably not as frequently and it's given sort of a real insight into you know what people need to, to make them happy, to, you know, um, make them feel happy in the job, but also, you know, at home and, and everything like that. I mean, we were a fairly close team before this happened, and I've got to say it's probably just brought everybody um, closer together. I think we've become a lot more self-aware as well, haven't we, with this period of reflection that we've had over the lockdowns. Uh, we are aware now of our own mortality more. We're aware of the fact that we're not infallible in leadership positions and we do have those moments of vulnerability. And so we're willing to talk a lot more about our health, be that physical or be that mental. Yeah, and and I would say that it's also probably shifted quite a lot of people's priorities. Um, and made them realise that, you know, what what they want out of life and what they need to make them happy and sort of say, well, actually, the thing that would make me really happy at work, for example, is, you know, if I, you know, if I finish earlier on Friday or, or whatever that is, or I want to spend more time at the weekend doing things with my, you know, family and friends. So I think for a lot of people, it's, just really made them think actually these are the stuff that's really important that really matters these are things that I want to spend my time doing um so it it reset I think people's goals a little bit it shifted their goals as to what they want and probably what they want from us uh, you know out of the business what what they want from their employers has changed a little bit um there's certainly been sort of more requests for potentially flexible hours which 
I think with businesses maybe struggled a little bit because we're doing a lot of work on site. But, you know, there's certainly more to shift towards that. Um, one thing we have started to do as, as a, a group is finish earlier on a Friday. So every Friday at four o'clock, we down tools. We bought a pool table and dart table um, so that, you know, everybody would have the chance just to get together and just have a bit of fun at the end of the week. So that's what we've tried to do. It's just one small thing. Yeah, it's a way of just sort of debriefing, isn't it? Just analysing everything and just cooling off. And I think when you've had such a 16 months as this, where you've all from the top down been sucked into that sort of survival mode and it's been very full on at times. It's good to be able to have that cool off period just to recharge the batteries, isn't it? And it's really important for health and well-being on that side of things and that work-life balance that we've become so much more aware of. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know um, I have um, a colleague who hasn't been on holiday, she hasn't been abroad for 10 years and um, I'm really encouraging her to try and book that holiday, you know, even if it's the next year as something to look forward to um, and really sort of trying to focus on, you know, these are things that you've been getting around to doing instead of putting them off, let's, you know, start moving forward because, you know, the country's moving again, you know, things are starting to happen and it, it is almost hard sometimes to be brave because we don't know quite what's around the corner. Mm. And we've obviously been through what we've been through in the in the last sort of eighteen months. Um, but you, you know, things are first start moving again. You know, the economy is recovering, um, and you know, we, we we move on. You know, it's that bit of you know, we get up again and and we we carry on. So I'm really looking forward to the next six months to sort of see what's coming up. There's a little bit of uncertainty, but you know, we we. We'll, we'll be there, we'll be brave, we will hope that, you know, our endeavours will pay off. Um, but I do think we will look like a different company than, than what we did at the start and, mm. and a different one in terms of we will be um, more improved, more, you know, employee-focused than what we were previously. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it is an uncertain period. We're just kind of quietly hoping, aren't we, that the lifting of restrictions is going to go well. We're not going to go backwards and there isn't sort of a kicking waiting around the long corner, let's say. Um, and as we sort of look to this period of time, we embrace its challenges and we hopefully can leave the immediate dangers of the pandemic behind. If we think about maybe sort of a year from now implementing some of those real priorities that you've outlined there, Emma, Rob, where do you see XL Water being by this time in 2022? What are you really hoping to have achieved? Um, I, I hope to have achieved, um, obviously, growth in the business. Um, we want to have taken on uh, more employees and, and expanded the team um, because we're always trying to look the future to where we're going um, we always have um, a five year plan in place at least and although obviously over the last 18 months we've, we've not quite been able to deliver what we wanted to do um, you know we've got the opportunity now to really sort of march forward um, I'd like for us to have done more in um, the pharmaceutical area but also continuing to help our customers um, particularly those that are manufacturing the hand sanitizer because although the demand was very high at the beginning of the pandemic, I don't think demand has particularly gone down. That is still a, a real need. 
Um, and maybe at some point in the future, we consider manufacturing the hand sanitizer ourselves. So, yes, that's what we're, we're looking to do going forward. And also, I would, I would hope that we still have all the same people in the business that we've got now. Mm. We've got a really fantastic team, and I want to continue to move forward with them and, and obviously just grow their numbers. Fantastic ambitions. Absolutely fantastic, Emma. And I do wish you all the luck in the world in hopefully implementing that vision, making it a reality. And I think it'd be fantastic, actually, just to catch up in the next uh, sort of eight to 10 months and just see how that vision's really coming along as well. Yeah, see if we hit uh, our targets. It's always the proof in the pudding. Have we done what we said we Absolutely. were going to do? <laughs> It'd be fantastic to review a little bit later on down the line because I've thoroughly enjoyed having you with us on the show today, Emma. It's been a real, real pleasure. And um, it's a shame we're just about out of time, actually, because I could literally just sort of discuss this issue with you, the priorities for the future and leadership all day. I've really, really enjoyed it. Yes, thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Likewise. And lastly, Emma, just before we do depart, please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on, because we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet. But fingers crossed that we're coming into better days now. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Emma Armitage, Managing Director at XL Water, onto the programme today. And I do hope that all of you thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Uh, Coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett, who's going to be sharing his views on the events of the last 16 months and his hopes for this period of economic recovery that we're hopefully entering now that restrictions have been lifted in England. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in 
And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also 
that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.